are back to another podcast episode of Essential Dynamics, the one place where you can find philosophy mixed in with, well, everything. I'm Reed McCollum, your quite good-looking host, with uh, with my good friend, and the reason we're doing this is who came up with the uh, philosophy of Essential Dynamics himself, Mr. Derek Hudson. How are you today, Derek? Reed, I'm fantastic, but... I don't know enough about philosophy to be sure that essential dynamics is a philosophy. Oh, I see. So it's, it's a framework. It's a way of looking at things. Okay, um, a perspective then. Yeah, sure, sure. You know, and, and one of the reasons that I'm a little bit nervous about labeling anything is we're here with Dr. Alex Clark. And uh, oh. Dr. Clark is an esteemed academic who also, among his other areas of study, studies academics. And... Wow. Um, and I'm very much not academic. I'm very much a pragmatist, uh, sort of um, off-the-cuff off kind of guy. And so we're going to get some academic rig- rigor in our conversation today. Um, I'm, so I'm excited about it and, and happy to have Alex here. Well, glad you're here. Dr. Clark, is, it, is Alex okay? No, no, please, Alex. Okay, Alex, excellent. Really appreciate the invite, Derek, and, and uh, really excited also to have read and, and thought a little about your framework that you're using. Um, and also, yeah, you're right, bigging me up quite a lot there as well, which I really appreciate too. Um, and yeah, really, I guess, you know, around what we do is we, we grapple with complexity in the real world and, and where there's real outcomes, but also real people and real challenges as well. So do you work at the University of Alberta? I, I'm not clear on, I'm sorry, I'm just meeting you and I, and I think you're a, also a good looking guy. So you should be doing something important. Yeah, so that's what the story I tell myself anyway. So I've been at the University of Alberta for 18 years. Um, I am not from Canada, you may detect that, or, or indeed Alberta. Um, oh. I came from the west of Scotland. Um, I actually Scotland, that's Scotland. Oh, Scotland. I thought it was Medicine Hat, but yeah. No. Yeah. Um, came over from Scotland on the little plane uh, 18 years ago with my 20-month-old son, who is now 20 years, uh, my wife. And we, we have a, a daughter who is Canadian by birth as well. Mm-hmm. So we, we've been here and seen Alberta and Canada grow and develop and sort of found our life in, in a wonderful country called Canada. Well, that's wonderful. We're glad you're here. So what is it you do in research, I'd like to know? Yeah, so uh, I broadly support health research across our campus, um, across basically the entire campus, from the bench to the bedside, if you like, from the basic science uh, to the animals, um, the fish uh, and the mice, all the way through to the clinical trials, um, the qualitative research, the social science humanities, so super, super diverse. And of course, the people are super diverse as well um, in terms of career stages from your graduate students, um, just getting into the academic research through to your postdocs who are thinking maybe of working in industry or, or academia to, of course, your faculty um, who teach uh, and they do research. One of the great things about uh, the university and also the province we are one of maybe two or three jurisdictions in the world that have two world-class universities within our province. Um, so the intellectual visibility and the grounding that gives us to bring talent and keep talent, I think, is really strong. Um, many of us at the moment are challenged by, you know, recessions and worrying about the future. Um, 
But um, knowledge is going to be the pathway out of that. I think uh, we've got a strong sense of that. And so it's a real asset to have the two universities, um, as well, of course, the University of Lethbridge um, as research intensive within the province. So, Alex, um, our listeners are are diverse uh, in different ways than than your academic community. We have a we have an audience that doesn't necessarily all um, spend time in the lab or um, reading research papers. And I'm I'm really interested in your work on coronary heart disease. Uh, that's a thing in my family. Okay. And and I, I know in I saw you do a presentation when you talked about how do you use qualitative research to get people to do things that are good for their health. And over the like the last few episodes, we were talking a little bit about how to help uh, kids progress in school, how to work with employees, how do you align employee interests with the interests of the company in a bunch of different ways. It's how do we get people to do things that either are good for them or good for the organization that they work in. Alex, what have you learned about how do you get people to do things? Yeah, well, of course, uh, great question, Derek. And of course, it's complex um, in the sense of, you know, different people exposed to the same situation or the same program, the same health service are, are going to react in different ways. Um, and that's because uh, it's always a little bit context specific. Um, best example I can give you about this um, those people in your life, Derek, that you talked about, um, your daughters and your grandchildren, did you ever try to tickle them? When they oh, were, yeah. Yeah, how did that go? Did they enjoy that? Well, you figure out when it works. Initially, it they don't like it. Yeah, so, you know, you can take the same intervention. It works for one person in your life, and it doesn't work for another person. You, you might have a, a young kid. Um, a son or a daughter very close to you who you tickle and they, you find that really funny and they really enjoy that. And then you think, well, I'm going to replicate that intervention on the bus going to work um, with someone I don't know. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you're going to go to jail, have a very different outcome um, because what works in one setting, in one context, through your wiggling fingers, is going to have a very different effect in a different context. Um, so the power of the ability to affect change is not inherently in the program or strategy or the intervention, such as the tickle. Um, it's always moderated by context and it's moderated by um, the social meaning uh, and the specifics uh, of the recipient of the intervention. And in science generally, we have this challenge um, to do with the reproducibility of findings, the degree to which findings from one setting are replicated in another. And historically, we used to believe, kind of like the tickle, if it worked in one setting, well, it's destined to work in another. So then we do the science, uh, we do the subsequent research, and we find out it actually has very, very different effects and often doesn't work as well or doesn't even work at all. Um, so, you know, really uncoupling that notion that an intervention is destined to lead to a certain output. And that is this issue called complexity. It's this issue that it's not about what intervention works. It's about what works for whom, when and why and developing different kind of responsive interventions for different settings that are going to work. So to come back to your question, uh, what's going to work in terms of heart health very much depends on the context what could work in Scotland, for example, where I'm from, uh, where um, there's a 
more a culture of coronary heart disease in terms of being super prevalent amongst your 50s and 60s and 70-year-old people. May not work as well in Canada, uh, where coronary heart disease tends to happen a little bit later in life. Um, and also it's got to do with the social norms that exist in your setting around physical activity. Um, so, for example, it's been interesting, you know, coming to Canada as a, a younger person, my 20s, and seeing the different approaches to physical activity here versus in the UK, uh, particularly around gender. Um, so it's really unusual um, for female, for, for young women um, in secondary school age, high school age in the UK and Scotland in particular, to be engaged in physical activity. Uh, you're talking about, you know, 10% sometimes, and it goes down over, you know, as as uh, the women reach their 20s and 30s. And chances are those women will not be physically active again until they develop chronic disease in their 60s or 70s. Now, why, why does that happen? Well, it's because um, notions of femininity often conflict with um, sweating and playing sport and the kinds of things that are associated with sport. Uh, being feminine is associated with, you know, certain other things that are not seem to be conducive with that. Uh, and so the participation rates in organized physical activity anywhere in the UK amongst uh, young women tend to be fairly low. Then you come to Canada uh, and you see the difference here where um, lots of uh, young women play soccer or football, as I would call it. Uh, you just don't see that in anywhere near the same degree uh, back in the UK because it's not seen to be as normal. So just that, that kind of sense of cultural norms, what's normal and what's not normal, uh, which is then reflected in, you know, what's organized versus not organized and what, what uh, choices people make. They can be so, so different based on context. I did not know that. Uh, I yeah, assume, it's really interesting, eh? Yeah, I, I assume that the... Uh, increase that I've seen over my lifetime of participation of young women in physical activity was a global trend of, um, I don't know, equal access to good stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting though, my, I'm, I'm going to get it right, Jade. Or I have three daughters, one son, my son played organized sports. My daughters basically didn't. Um, but they uh, walked to school. Uh, we got them camping and hiking. Um, they now all do yoga. And they, you know, they're, they're pretty normal for Canadian, you know, women in their 20s and 30s now. Um, and I just, it just kind of blows my mind that that wouldn't be, that there would be such a gender difference in, a, in other places. So yeah, it, does, it does vary from country to country. So I don't think it's yeah. as much in Canada, but it's interesting you even say that, you know, your, your kids walk into school um, and you certainly see a trend in children all over, I think, North America and also uh, other countries beyond that, where there's perceptions of risk um, that, that kids don't walk to school, they get driven because it's perceived not to be safe, partly because there's so many cars, of course, driving to school. So it becomes a little bit self-fulfilling. Um, but again, you know, just the way our brains are wired to assess risk, um, sometimes we downplay some risks falsely and we upplay other risks uh, based on our own cognitive biases. Um, but yeah, the more you can integrate a physical activity, kind of sometimes in the small things in life. And I read one piece of research this week that suggested if you were intensely active and you, you're all going to like this, for four seconds, 
periodically during the day, you can achieve fairly amazing physiological benefits that we usually equate with four seconds with being physically active for 30 minutes. So you're saying four seconds of, yeah. okay, I, I, I'm finally convinced uh, is, that's my limit. Reed, this is your exercise program. This is my exercise program. You know, I have to say that I consider exercise uh, uh, an enormous conspiracy because uh, there is no exercise in heaven. I'm not sure if you knew that. But uh, I, uh, I get up every morning. I go to the bathroom. I then come out of the bathroom and dress, and then I go into the kitchen. That's a lot of walking. Well, if you just put four seconds of, of uh, brisk, uh, you know, you've got to be really high intensity, go to the max that you can go to. Uh, but I just, yeah, you I can just get mentioned benefits that. From yeah. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> that's really, that's amazing. That's amazing. Now, I do have a question here. I want to know how you two met. Uh, we met for the first time on a task force. Oh. Which sounds super cool. Yeah. Uh, um, it was, you, uh, but a task force is also those people in yellow, in uh, orange jumpsuits that uh, pick up trash on the side of the road. Uh, I believe that's a task force as well. Was it? It, it felt more like force? the eighteen, as, as uh, we yeah, yeah, back in yeah. the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, uh, Tech Edmonton, um, may it may it rest in peace, because um, it well, actually it's got a week left. No, a day's left in its uh, a formal existence. Was a joint venture partnership between Edmonton Economic Development and the University of Alberta. And a couple of years ago, Alex represented the University of Alberta and I represented Economic Development Edmonton. And we tried to consider what uh, the future of Tech Edmonton might be. And I, I just, I just got to tell you that from the first moment, I thought, man, this, Alex is a really smart guy, even though he does have a PhD, you know. And, That's right. And even though academic, I know. Yeah. So, so Alex, if we can go back to the cardiac thing and then yeah, yeah, read sure. it. Um, so... I had a I had a heart attack in my early 40s, um, and I didn't have the kind of lifestyle pattern that you might expect um, a heart attack victim to have. Although I had the family history, uh, you know, all the all the way down. Um, it didn't help that he was 650 pounds at the time, and so we none of us were surprised. Yeah. So in actual fact, it was December, but I'd run 5k the day before. Yeah. Um, and I was taking my statins and uh, eating a low-fat diet. Um, so when I um, when I was in heart cardiac rehab, and they were educating my class, the class of December two thousand two, on how we were going to now live our lives, I was younger than everybody. Yeah. And uh, I remember one conversation in nutrition class when someone said, "You mean I can't eat bacon and eggs every morning for breakfast?" Um, so. You know, all this stuff is very personal. Yeah. You know, these very personal lifestyle changes that that, uh, that seem very, very hard. What have you seen, um, you know, where have you seen initiatives where people kind of grab on and they do make some of those harder changes? Because I think it's probably more broadly applicable and other things that we might consider. Yeah. I, although although I, I understand that you just taught, taught me that, context is really important so yeah sure but i mean i think there's some 
really positive messages um, in the notion that around heart health, heart health can be everybody's business. Whether you are 10 years old to 100 years old, uh, and the science is there as well, literally, if you start engaging in heart health behaviors, almost straight away, you talk in days, your heart physiologically starts to benefit from it. Uh, and also, I would say your mental health. Now, unlike, and we live in a very medicalized world where you know you can take a pill for everything. Unlike every single pill, there's virtually, well, there are no side effects um, uh, around, um, particularly the physical activity side of things. Uh, and as we were saying earlier on, you don't have to do that much to experience a difference. Um, and and somebody who's not physically active, it's not about running marathons. It is about getting out of breath a little bit every day and making that more regular, uh, moving. Um, it, it's about being consciously less sedentary. Um, they talk about, you know, the 96% sedentary lifestyle, whereby if, if you are physically active for that 4% of your day, you can experience physiological benefits. And, and there are health services um, traditionally called cardiac rehabilitation. I think you mentioned that, Denek, um, and also secondary prevention clinics and health services. And these days, apps um, that you can use that will help you and support you to know a little bit more, but also to integrate um, these recommendations for physical activity, for diet. And it's not about necessarily stopping eating the bacon and eggs in the morning. It could be about having that once a week and that's okay and then for the rest of the time thinking about a diet that has more fruit more vegetables more pulses less processed food it really is about making lots of small changes but we know if you can do that um, the benefits physiologically are almost right away uh, the benefits for life quality also increase in terms of your mental health um, and you can experience a life and and this really speaks to you Derek um, where you can have decades um, ahead of you of good life quality and your risk of coronary heart disease goes down significantly. I'll give you an example here. Someone who smokes and has a heart attack, if they stop smoking, uh, they'll have the equivalent risk of a non-smoker in about three years. Um, now, they still are relatively high risk of another heart attack because they've had one, but they can make a massive impact by stopping smoking. Um, and so you, when you have that sense of real benefit um, and really taking care of your heart, um, I, I think you can, based on the science, really experience a better life, adding life to years and years to life. Um, really, really important. Your heart's an amazing thing, and I would say as well, and, and it's good to reflect um, that, this heart that we all have in our in our body that started to beat three weeks after you were conceived uh, and that by definition is going to keep on beating till virtually the moment you die hundred thousand times every day 35 million times every year two thousand gallons of blood your heart can live outside of your body for about four hours if it's called amazing organ um so we have this amazing thing what can we do every day to take better care of it uh, and that's really what my work is about. That's fantastic. Reed, yeah, what are you I thinking? Wanna, I was just thinking that uh, Derek has uh, genetic uh, genetic concerns that 
uh, how would you put it, Derek, is uh, that pre that sort of uh, suggested heart disease in your family? Yep. Um, how do you how do you prevent it in your siblings and your your children who are now adults? They must be aware of that uh, propensity toward uh, heart disease. So so the. I'll, I'll give you the quick version, but uh, my father had angina in his 50s, um, and he got checked out and ultimately had a quadruple bypass. Uh, he never had a heart attack. Um, at 57, my, my mom died of a heart attack, and my dad then, uh, when he was six, my mom was 58, my dad was 67, when we had a stroke. Uh, so I was, I was under care when my dad for you know when it was first detected my mom insisted at least my brother and I went and got unchecked my sisters have turned out not to be too bad my brother's had a heart attack now as well he was in his 50s he's younger than me so it took him longer um so the girls seem to be okay they're being checked out but my son who's uh where he's just turning 27 um yeah, he, he's uh, now being monitored for cholesterol and he's on the low-fat diet and whole thing. He can beat this. Um, if, he probably uh, if he, will. He's a If he does three things, watches what he eats, gets exercise, and then continues to get checked. Um, and at some point, maybe he goes on meds, but, you know, that, that's, that doesn't have to happen. Um, and because of the family history, we were all aware. And, you know, his, um, his mom's been on him. Now, we've, now he's got a wife that'll help, <laughs> help as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the other thing is that my dad had bypass surgery. I got a stent. Um, and we're getting better and better at these therapies are less invasive, um, like significantly less invasive. And... You know what's the what's the future gonna gonna hold up? So you know, if twenty years from now someone has a heart attack in their forties, you know they're probably gonna be fine. I mean, like my experience, you think about it. I had a heart attack. I called nine one one. The ambulance came in six minutes and forty five seconds. I know that from my cell phone bill. Wow. Um, th- you know, twenty years before that. You know, you didn't have that intervention possible. What's what's available in the future? Yeah, that's a really, really good point you make there, Derek, because something like 65% of people having heart attacks, um, they they don't reach for help quick enough. Um, they can delay two hours to five hours. Uh, and these are dead people's tales. If, if you think something like that's happening to you and you think, oh, you, you know, I'll wear off or, or I'll call the family doctor and get an appointment next week. Um, this is the most significant period. So definitely the advice is always if you think you're having a heart attack, chest pain, a shortness of breath down your arm. So, so important. Call 991 quickly. Um, and that's going to increase the biggest chance of your survival is getting to hospital as quick as possible, getting some clot-busting drugs uh, beyond your age. That's the biggest factor that's going to determine to survive. But you have that split-second decision. Think now what would where things would be if you hadn't made that decision to seek help. If you put that masculine pride that many of us have first, thought, no, I'm going to I'm going to thrive this out. Um, this is not the way you want to go. So I think you live in testimony, Derek. Um, great health lesson there. 
call for help, get checked out, and, and it literally is about life and death. So um, we don't talk a lot about faith uh, in this show, but it's an underlying um, part of part of uh, part of my life for sure. And um, I would just say that the divine intervention in this case might have been that it hurt really bad. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I did my research with people, and they would describe when they're having a heart attack, it's like a pain they could not even imagine. They could not even comprehend that they could feel this sore. But nevertheless, what's really interesting is when you talk about the people who do go to hospital versus those who don't um, when they're having their symptoms, so often people downplay it. And also, it's important to recognize that not everyone's symptoms are the same. So, for example, more and more now we know that women experience different symptoms when they're having a heart attack as men. And they'll often think, without that absence of really crushing central chest pain, it can't be a heart attack. Yeah. That's a big misconception. Um, 30% of heart attacks, brace yourself here, have no symptoms at all. Oh, Don't you're kidding. Them. No. Uh, Reed, you're having a, having one right now. I am, and I, I hope I survive it. But uh, I hope I survive long enough to see uh, Dr. Clark return to us at some future point and talk more about this. Uh, I think we barely scratched the surface, but that's pretty close to the time we have. So, and Reed, as, as we wind up, I just want to ask Alex one question, and if, if it takes too long, we'll do round two. Um, and that is... With you, with the way you approach the world, Alex, what is it about essential dynamics that I should be looking at to tune up? Where's the, where's the gaps? Yeah, great question. I, I think always bringing context in is the most important thing. Um, that I, just as we talked about today, remember the example of the tickle? What works in one setting is not necessarily going to work in another how can you take essential dynamics and adapt it to different people in different settings and get the benefit of that wonderful set of uh, framework guidance um, so that you can continue to achieve great outcomes, uh, but recognizing you're going to have to do that perhaps in different ways for different contexts. Hey, that's, that's great. So I'm just going to do a plug for essential dynamics as we wrap up. We talk about the quest and what, uh, what Alex gave us today was another example of a way to think about your quest. Um, and that is that you can add years to your life and life to your years. Life's a journey. Let's make it a meaningful one. And hey, why not a long one if we're going to enjoy the journey? So Alex, I didn't expect to spend all the time on cardiac. I'm feeling good. Uh, I went for a walk this morning. I go for a walk every morning. Um, except for when I ride my bikes. A lot of times I do both. Um, fe feeling good about that. And I hope that everyone does, uh, does everything they need to do to get that physical activity up. Uh, Cause if life's, life's a journey, you might as well be walking or moving forward somehow. So Reed, you can shut me up now, but uh, Alex, man, thanks very much. Alex, if they have, if our listeners have questions and want to get in touch with you, do you have a, a website or something that we, you could recommend? Uh, sure, the best way to reach me is to send me an email, alex.clark, no E, at uAlberta.ca, or you can go to the website, which is happyacademic.com. Happy ap academic. I'll remember that Academic. because there are none. <laughs> uh, uh, well, we know, I know of one, and Alex actually has a partner, so that's two. <laughs> okay, there you go. Uh, well, Derek, where can people find you? 
DerekHudson.ca is the best place. And uh, you've found us already if you're listening to the podcast. So there we go. Uh, like and subscribe and share, please. Yes, please do. And uh, my thanks to uh, Dr. Alex Clark for joining us today. I look forward to seeing you again in the future. Uh, for Derek Hudson, for Bring Griffiths in the studio, I'm Reed McCollum. Consider your quest. Thank you.